In this episode, Don Dixon, CFO at Datastax, talks about the power of offering your team's visibility in times of crisis, the importance of operating like a public company from day one, and why you should focus on people, not product, when weighing up career choices. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's CFOs. Welcome, Don, and thanks for being on the CFO Playbook. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Don, you know, when you look at your background and, and you can see the career you've had, you've had an incredible career that's ridden so many waves all the way through like the original kind of dot-com boom and then into this like this, the incredible transformation we've seen over the past 10, 20 years. And I was wondering if if you have seen that changing demand on you as a finance leader and as a CFO throughout that whirlwind, you know, last couple of decades of, of uh, riding those hyper-growth companies. I think you have. You know, I'll start with my last three companies have been startups, right? Uh, private companies. Prior to that, my first uh, handful of companies were were public at the time. So I really focus on the last three that I've, I've been a part of. What makes a successful company probably doesn't change internally. And that's, you know, great people, great products, solving kind of difficult problems for for customer. But externally, I think the view of, of a great company has changed over time. And, it, you know, it started with just, you know, hey, absolute growth at any cost, it's evolved to something other than growth. It could be profitability. It could be cash flow positive, could be a path to cash flow positive. There's lots of external views. And I think the most important thing is when you're in uh, these startups, the, the reality is, is, you know, what you're doing and what you're focused on has to be your North Star, yeah. right? You can't chase what the market is telling you is interesting right now because it does change. It does ebb and flows and there is a flavor of the month. And if you're you're constantly chasing that, you're not necessarily doing what's right for the business, your your customers, or the product that you're solving. So, yes, uh, lots of external evolution. But the reality is, is if you continue to maintain your focus on what's important for your company, I think you can kind of go through all of those um, distractions, if you will. In terms of the the job on a daily basis, you know, I think the the most difficult part of of any job, whether it's a CFO or a coach of uh, of any team is really the people. And, you know, the, the technical side of the job is interesting and you'll get new requirements all the time, you know, whether that's statutory requirements or requirements from your coach. The key, I think, is really hiring very talented people to work with and focusing time and attention on them, their careers and what they're trying to do. And if you do that, you know, the evolution is the evolution. It's still a people thing and it's still a getting things done together thing. And it's interesting you say, like, try to as best you can almost shield your team from the distractions. But imagine that that can be challenging at times because even if you use a recent example, when things like a pandemic, which doesn't often happen in fairness, but when things yeah. like that or the financial crisis or whatever it is happens, like I was at Dropbox and I think it was the early 2015 or 2016 and there was a change in the market, a shift mm-hmm. away from growth at all costs for SaaS yeah. to more about profitability. And even within that, that led to investor pressures at the time because we were, we were private but considering going public at some point in the future. And you could see the the market sentiment then infiltrate the leadership team and then that change company direction. Yeah. Is that not a, a challenging thing to undertake where you try and get the balance right between listening to the market, taking feedback, but not being like swung from side to side based on the sentiment? 
it's like fashion to me. You know, there are certain <laughs> things that are, and I'm not a fashion person, right? I, I got my polo on and I wear that pretty much every day. You know, there are trends, right? And with those trends, you know, you can buy that slim fit suit, which is a disaster for me. Or, you know, you can buy kind of the standards that are going to work for the next 20 years. And so, sure, when you have things, examples like like you gave on the pandemic and the financial crisis, you, of course, have to acknowledge them. You have to be present in them. And you've got to make sure for not only the company, but your team, you're leading through those things. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I still think that if you if you say, you know, this is the technology we have, this is how it serves the customer's needs, here's how we can make it something that is valuable to them, you know, then no matter which direction the external world goes, you still can drive through that. And obviously you have to, you know, I, I think of this as kind of on a sailboat, right? A yacht, I'm not a seaman, so... <laughs> this is going to be a bastardized example. Um, but, you know, there's wind there. And as long as there's wind, you can tack all you want. At some point in time, you're going to catch that sail. You're going to get velocity. And so chasing winds is very difficult, right? And so the other thing I'll tell you about leading through this is, and you talked about kind of sheltering a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a fine balance, right? Because people want, I never say exposure because exposure is bad. People want visibility, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I don't try to um, hide people from what's going on. I try to give them as much visibility as I can. That way they can think that they're a significant part of every decision, which I'd like them to be. They also can get experiences that they might not otherwise have. I'm very fortunate that our current CEO is very hands-on and he's hands-on with everyone. You know, if I were to shelter them from that, they wouldn't get that that visibility. They wouldn't get that FaceTime, if you will. I think that would be at a detriment to them too. So both externally and internally, sheltering is great, but at the same time, people have to have those experiences as well so they can they can become a better employee a better leader in the future that's i think something that so many people could relate to because that idea of you know when there's a difficulty there's a question like do you protect or you mentioned exposure and and the the way you described it as they want them to have visibility and perhaps experience but not exposure where they feel exposed or there's a vulnerability it's a very difficult balance to strike And, and of course when you're trying to give them visibility Let's assume, of course, they're in your team, they're slightly earlier in their career, that it might create something like fears or worries about the future. So how do you manage that in the process when you're trying to give them visibility, the reassurance that we're heading in the right direction or things are going to be okay, like to, but not to be too, too trite about it? Yeah, no, it's, it's a fine line because even, you know, as a private or public company, there are certain metrics you're willing to share or not share. Yeah. And we struggle with this all the time in private companies because you typically share far less than you would as a, as a public company. And that sounds counterintuitive, but at least a public company, you are giving financial information out that people can see and read and digest. Mm-hmm. As a private company, you typically don't do that. The key really is, I think, to understand the individual. And, and this mm-hmm. is difficult in a large enterprise, but oftentimes we're, we're you know, in the startup world, you're a little smaller. We have a 500-person organization, so I can't um, have a good understanding of every person's backgrounds and where they are. But the G&A team itself is about you know 50, right? Mm-hmm. So with 50 people, you know, I have a pretty good idea of what most people on the team do, how they think, what they're trying to do in their careers, who you can push and who you can't. It's no different than, you know, a sports analogy. You know the player that you can you can push a little harder and you know the one that if you do, they're going to wilt a little bit. But you want them both to be successful in their own way. So typically what I do is, you know, I try to give as much information as I can to give people context, you know, while still keeping confidential things confidential. And then for those that I think need to be stretched a little more or pushed a little more, I typically will bring them in, talk to them a little more and potentially give them stretch challenges 
things that expose them a little bit, like I said, negatively, but understand that they know that that's something that's stretching them and making them better. And if we pull them back, they're still confident in what they did, and but it was a good challenge for them. So I think that's really the goal is it's kind of individually applied. And again, that's something that's easy to do in a smaller company and something I think you need to take advantage of when you're a private company. And then I guess, of course, as you said, getting the judgment right between who, those who you can push in order to motivate yeah. and those who maybe you need to place an arm around to give them reassurance or encouragement. Yeah, yeah and I failed both ways, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I've, I've had the time where I've pushed someone who wasn't capable of taking the push and had some collateral damage from that. And then there's been times when I've kind of coddled someone and not given them enough uh, area to run. And so, you know, there's no perfect answer on how you do that. It's really about the feel and the, the conversation being being as transparent as possible. And, you know, mm-hmm. the hard part, and I've learned this in my time, you know, I, my wife says I'm funny, but I'm not that funny. When I tell jokes, people laugh at work, but that's because I'm the CFO, right? Well, it's the same thing. You know, when I'm having conversations with people, they don't always tell me exactly what they're thinking, right? And some of it is they're very protective because they don't know why I'm doing this. They don't understand that I... My job is really to you know, serve the company, serve the shareholders, but also to serve them. Yeah. They think the opposite. They think they're there to serve me. And that's just the opposite, right? I mean, I, I don't, that's not how I think at all, right? It's, it's more about me making sure that their careers are rich and whether it's financial or through content of work or daily enjoyment, right? I mean, all of those things are my job. And this touches on the, the perennial challenge for leaders and CFOs, I'm sure, are no different, is that, as you said, you people don't always tell you the truth and they're not always open sometimes because they're trying to maybe maybe because they're trying to manage the relationship maybe because they're nervous it's not thought through but of course that means that you're constantly trying to interpret what you get and you're trying to see okay what's the root of this what's what's going on how do you overcome that challenge and, and understand like what's going on on the ground and and try and get to the truth of the matter when so many people are trying to filter well, if you're talking about the companies or uh, an external data point, you know, it's all data, right? I mean, yeah. so I look, I look at a lot of data uh, when it comes to how we're running our business or how the external world looks at themselves. And so we, we take a look at, you know, potentially, you know, recent IPOs or M&A activities that are disclosed and look at the metrics around growth, operational efficiency, whatever it is. And so, you know, that's one way is through data. But when you're talking about people, obviously, you don't have a data book, if you will, on every person. So, a lot of this is time and energy, right? I mean, you have to, this has to be a focus and it's not a, hey, I had a 30 minute meeting with them. I fully understand them, right? It's it's having social hours with everyone and kind of forcing everyone to kind of talk and share. It's when you're in the hallway and you see someone and, you know, they look excited or depressed. You ask how their day is or what's going mm-hmm. on. To me, it's about, you know, kind of curiosity, personal curiosity about people. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, if you give them confidence that what you're doing is really a genuine interest to them, then I think they open up. If uh, they think it's more self-serving for you or you're trying to get something, then obviously they're not going to be as open. So to me, it's just investing the time and energy and hoping at some point in time, people believe that you're genuine and they trust you. And is that something that is just part of who you are? Or have have you recognized as well throughout your career, actually, this is an important characteristic that I need as, as a leader in, in order to build and inspire teams. And so you, then you've had to actively develop it. Everything about my uh, work life now is something I've had to develop. I'm naturally a, an introvert. The pandemic is not a bad thing for me because I don't mind sitting in my, uh, my office at home and talking to people on, on calls. You know, the social part of my job, which is I can have conversations, but it takes a lot of energy for me to do that. So no, it's something that's absolutely been developed. And people that I work with are amazed when I say I'm an introvert and 
you know, my wife understands when I come home, the last thing I want to do is have a conversation. It drives her crazy, right? Because she's been waiting, you know, at six, seven o'clock when I roll in the house to tell me what's going on in, in our lives and our family's life. And I just kind of slump down and go, yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, can I get an hour? So no, it's very unnatural for me. But, you know, you have to understand the role you're in and what your job is. And one of the things I did very early in my career talking to other people who have been CFOs is ask them, you know, what are those things that I need to do? Similar to what your your listeners are, are doing here. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of it was get out of your queue, right? Get out of your office and go talk to people. I passed, you know, 15 years before being a CFO. You know, I was pretty good in my cube. I was pretty good, you know, supporting the person I, I supported and the team I supported. But I wasn't that person that sat in the lunchroom for an hour and talked to people, right? And, and that's, that's an important part of the job. And I can empathize with that as well, is that I presume that that's, uh, on a personal level, quite a seismic shift, right? Because you're, you're typically, you're excellent at your job. You're great at partnering. The, the one-on-one relationships are, are brilliant. And maybe you'll be a master of your craft as well with, with the knowledge of the, of the domain. But then going out and actually engaging with people, it requires an outsized level of energy that maybe potentially leaves less energy for the, the core craft that you're doing as well. So that, I imagine true. that was a challenging shift at the time. It is, you know, and it, and it still is every day. You know, I, I kind of take the presumptive close that when I'm talking to someone, they want to hear what I'm talking about and I want, and then I hope they understand and I, I make them feel that that I want to hear what they're saying. And so I, I walk into every conversation thinking it's just that, a conversation that both of us can be, you know, honest and transparent about, like we talked about earlier, then it's a matter of time before I really understand, you know, where the motives are and whether someone's being completely honest or not. But yeah, it's a, still a daily challenge. Another thing you touched on back there, which I find really interesting because we were talking about, say, leading as a CFO and so on, and there's all these pressures as a CFO, managing investor relations, or whether that's public or private, and then, of course, steering the company financially, which is a huge responsibility to, to share. But you started off by talking about, okay, have your right North Star as a company, like have confidence that you're solving a problem that's important for the customer. One of the first things in your mind is like to be customer-centric. And when you're in, and I know this from my own experience as well, but when you're in operational roles, it's very easy to be detached somewhat from the customer and to be focused on your own job and you're trying to add value. So how can finance contribute to that customer-centric type thinking within a company, especially during periods of crisis? There are really several customers, right? So Mm -hmm. there's internal customers, the person you support. So if you're the controller for marketing, the CMO or the, the marketing organization, but then there's also that external customer, and that's the one who's buying your, your technology or using your technology. So we do several things. Number one is, you know, if you're on the finance side, and when I think about that as a finance business partner, again, you mm-hmm. and we don't want to be in control of anything. We want to give context, but not in control. So we call them business partners. You know, when you're there, we physically would sit you next to that, that team, right? Mm-hmm. And let you know that, yeah, you're part of GNA, but at the end of the day, you exist because of them here. And their successes are your successes. So the physical nature of it is important. And obviously in a COVID world, it's a little different because we're not physically near each other. But but that would be the first thing I do is, is physically move people over. And oftentimes we'll transfer them underneath that organization. So they'll be direct line into that team and dotted line, right? Mm-hmm. So it, that even feels even more of a hard line. You understand that, you know, you are part of this business and part of this team. The second thing we do is really around, you know, customer enterprises. Um, we flood them with information. So we use an internal tool called uh, Things I Learned. So it's called a till for us. So every interaction you have externally, your job is to then post it and it goes to the entire company. And, you know, our goal then is, you know, obviously for people to digest as much as they can of that. But you get an idea of, you know, the conversations that are being had. So, 
you know, if you're in accounts payable, for instance, your conversations are all about, geez, I know I need to pay you, right? So those are, those are bad conversations. So the tills are a nice tool for that. The other thing we do is um, we have a weekly all hands, and this is my current company. And one of the things we try to do is get a customer to come and talk to us about their business, not about us, but their business. And if you start with, tell me about you, typically they end with, let me tell you why you're an amazing partner. But it's natural, right? Because they're, they're talking about themselves and they understand though they're talking to us. So we try not to focus on what we do. We talk about what they do. And so again, having someone real life, having a conversation with you about their world and how you play in it, I think is really important too. And it, it's energy, right? People enjoy seeing that we're changing the world. So I think those are a few of the tricks, but it is difficult in Genie because you don't, you don't touch that external world as much as you'd like to. But those are, those are a few of the tricks we use. Yeah, I love those ideas. Like we, I've been in a few sessions there where like you bring the customer in, and again, you you ask that same question. Like, tell us a little bit about what what it's like for you, because of the context, it's inevitable for them to relate it back to like why they're there and the team in front of them. Because as the presenter, they're thinking of their own audience, which ironically is like one of their service providers or or partners. So it's it's like a fascinating dynamic. But the till is really interesting because it, you touch on that that point, again, within like an operational role or GNA, is that the constant balance between are you involved in strategic conversations or are you doing like or like operational day-to-day type things? Is there a way that you try and manage that balance? Because of course, you never lose the day-to-day and the operational aspect. That's the reason for being. But what there's a constant desire to abstract the, yourselves and the team away from that in certain cases, so that you can add value in a more strategic level? Is there a way that you think about that, again, as, a, as an operational leader and a CFO? The mission of the GNA organization, I think, helps sum it up a little bit. I'm quoting it from memory, so I'm not going to read it directly. But it's basically, you know, be a, a strategic business partner to those that you support. And that's either, you know, the internal business or external customer. But at the same time, uh, keep us out of orange jumpsuits. And that's the, you know, make sure you kind of do your job, right? Some of this is statutory requirements, compulsory things. And so it's really important to put that in that order, right? It's Mm -hmm. be a business partner. Oh, and by the way, do this too. And so part of our philosophy is really just to make sure people hear and understand that every day, which is, you know, yes, your job may be transactional, but at the end of the day, if you understand kind of the key objectives of the company, the key objectives of the function, And it's really important to make sure that you as an individual understand how what you do rolls up to that. I think that's what we, you know, how we get people to think, okay, yeah, I'm I'm transacting, I'm transacting, I'm transacting, but the why, and then how can it be better, right? And how does it have an impact on person A or customer B? Then I think you end up doing your job better. So I think it's a combination of kind of our mission and our philosophy and kind of what we talk about every day, you know, how we remind people about our objectives and we do that formally on a monthly basis. Uh, mm-hmm. Informally, coaches are having those kinds of conversations every week-ish, right? I mean, I, I like to say every week when you do one-on-ones, if you do them, but uh, at least you know a couple times a month where we're talking about, remember, this is what we're trying to accomplish as a team, and here's how you're a part of that. And I think that starts to elevate the thinking outside of just transact this, transact this, transact this. You mentioned a couple of times the idea of like, being a coach as much as a manager or a leader, is that something that you personally subscribe to? Or is it also something that at DataStacks that you try and implement as like more of a coaching mentality where you're helping people achieve their goals rather than giving them the answer? There's a lot of things that are, are DataStacks philosophies. And it's come, I've, I've worked with the same uh, CEO now 
twice. It's my third time working with him, but second time as him as CEO and me as CFO. Mm-hmm. And these are definitely philosophies that are uh, things that either I have given to him or he's given to me. It's mostly him to me. But there are things now that I've been doing these things so long that they seem like they're my ideas. So I'll take credit for them. <laughs> um, you use the term, you know, my team. We don't. It's the GNA team. I happen to lead it. So there's no confusion about, you know, the ultimate decision maker. But at the end of the day, and I'll give you a great example. You know, I've had, I've been at DataStax probably 19 months now, and I've probably have 10 different functions report in and then come out of my, the group I support. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when it's your team, you know, there's protection, it's us and it's silos. But when it, when it's the team, you don't worry about that, right? It goes in the right place. You coach the team that's in front of you and you try to make it better. And at some point in time, you know, it goes somewhere else because it has escape velocity. And that's actually a wonderful, liberating thing, right? You've built something or created something or put something on a trajectory that it now can exist somewhere else and potentially in an independent place. The my team thing is something that's definitely something we deal with, right? I'm not here to manage anyone. It's the, the thing I mentioned earlier, the context, not control thing. My job is, you know, I have a functional responsibility. And yes, there are several people on that team. But at the end of the day, what they do is as important as what I do. And we're just all part of a team and a very flat organization. Of course, we all get different salaries and different equity positions. But at the same time, we're all rolling in the same direction. And sometimes you shine shoes and sometimes you, you work on strategy. And that happens on a daily basis, right? You do you do what's necessary. Um, and if, if you have that mentality, I think that coaching makes more sense than managing. Right. We're all knowledge workers. We're all mm-hmm. very technical, strong people. We've all been, you know, in this case, in the valley for a while. And so it's it's valuable to let everyone think of it themselves and they are part of a team and not not part of a hierarchy. I like that. And and what it alludes to is going back to your point on sporting analogies, the phrase that often gets airtime, which is that there's no player or or manager bigger than the team itself. And so by not having ownership over the team, then that means that actually you're you're recognizing the team exists independent of not just the coach or the manager or the, the person who happens to lead it, but also the individuals as well. And and that I think can probably serve a greater purpose as well. Data stacks, the company I'm at now, will exist whether I'm here or not, and whether yeah. you're here or not. So what's important is not the fact that this person reports to this. What's important is, you know, you're paid well, you enjoy your job, and you mm-hmm. feel like you're being developed. And if all those things are happening, then then this is a great place to be. And if those things aren't happening, then hopefully we're having conversations about why and we're trying to solve. And if we can't solve, I literally have this conversation every day when I have to, or I try to find them another place outside of data stacks, mm-hmm. right? Because that's part of being a coach, right? It's it's not, if you're a manager, you're managing at data stacks. If you're a coach, you're just trying to help them be better. And, you know, sporting analogy, you might move to, to team B, right? And I'm not the coach on that team, but I still want you to be a better hitter or better find the open space better, you know, whatever it is for your sports analogy that, that works for you. That's what I want them to be, regardless of whether they're at data stacks. You know, part of, I think part of anyone's legacy as a coach are, um, you know, the people that uh, they've worked with. You know, you talked a little bit about companies I worked with and companies that we've been acquired by. That's interesting. But it's really, to me, it's the people that have gone on to do other things. And that's something that's really valuable. I, I go back to my BEA days. BEA had a, an amazing finance organization. And so the leaders, when I joined, I was at the, the bottom of the, the barrel. The leaders that built that GNA team, that finance team, did an amazing job of assembling talent and giving them opportunities to be successful. And if you go around the valley, you'll see that a lot of them have gone on to be very significant leaders and made a major difference. And so that's how I look at the job. It's it's less about the company I'm at now. I'll never tell my boss that. 
It's really more about developing people so they become a better part of the world that we live in here in the Valley, right? And and again, using the Silicon Valley as an example. I guess why that's actually, you know, you mentioned that you've worked with your CEO three times, you know, twice in the in the roles that you're in now. The fact that you've done that is precisely because of having that attitude in the first place. Whereas if you were more like focused on my team, my company, you you might not have had those enduring relationships that have gone, you know, from from challenge to challenge. I think so. And I, and, and it's um, the same thing with the team that we have here at Datastax. There are several people I've worked with in the past. And, you know, I, I love that because it means that we've done something right, either by the company or by the individual. It also means that what we're doing, they probably are doing too. And they're, they're developing other people the same way. And that's a nice sounding board. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's both a, a blessing and a curse because I also, you know, I can't tell my jokes and have people laugh because they've heard them all. I got to come up with new content. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. What this all encapsulates for me is that actually the amount of energy you put into not just the the selection of your the people you work with and and of course how you can coach them, but the culture the the working culture of the team it seems to be really integral to the way that you that you lead. Yeah, it's critical. With the pandemic, it's a little challenging because hallway conversations or, or energy that people might uh, feel is lost a bit, and so we've done some artificial things, you know, all hands type things with the team cocktail hours, happy hours, et cetera. Everything's a little awkward online, right? It's not perfect. You don't have that same human touch. Even you and I are doing a good job of trying not to talk over each other, right? But, you know, when you're in a group of 20 or 30 people, just no one knows who's really talking to them and versus you know, everyone else. So, yeah, I mean, that that environment is is what makes it. And, and truthfully, when someone leaves the, a company, especially if you didn't have visibility, I talked earlier mm-hmm. about, you know, understanding that, they're well compensated, they're, they have a great opportunity and they're enjoying themselves. If all of those things are happening and someone leaves, I'm very saddened by that, right? And I know that sounds weird, but I am. It's, it's, I almost wonder what we did wrong. But if someone were to come just the opposite, and I know this is a very difficult thing. I've had a lot of people say, it's hard to come and tell you this, but if someone were to come and say, I enjoy working with you because of this thing, I, I can't be here any longer. And if I can't solve that thing, I love that. That is actually success for me. It sounds weird, right? But when yeah. someone leaves and there's there's visibility to why and it makes sense, I celebrate with them and I go, yes, you need to take that job and it's going to be amazing and let me know how I can help. But when um, when people leave kind of just with notice, I think that's complete failure, complete failure. So it's not about keeping people. That's never the goal, right? It's never, The goal isn't just to keep people. That sounds horrible, right? You're kept. But it's really about you know being a part of that career choice with them. And hopefully making this the right place. But if it's not, helping them with it. And I've, I've referred people that I wanted to keep to other companies and they've left and gone. And just because they needed a different opportunity that I couldn't give them. And that relies on, I presume, constant communication early. Because then you, and to your point earlier on, having a relationship that's based on trust with as many of the as many people within the team that you're leading as possible, because then at least you're having the conversations early, they're able to share with you and, and you're able to then give them feedback as to, can we solve that problem? And if not, actually, maybe time for a new challenge. It's all about communication. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the toughest part of the job is the people. And it's because it takes the most amount of time and energy if you want to do it right. Projects come and go, People unfortunately do too, but if your goal is really to retain the team and keep them on board for a long period of time, the only way to do that in my mind, other than throwing a ton of money at them, which you know isn't that exciting, the golden handcuffs, if you will, uh, the only way to do that is really through a personal touch and making sure that you're invested in what they're trying to accomplish. 
And you mentioned actually, of course, the backdrop of like leading through a remote team, distributed team in the midst of a pandemic. And you alluded to a couple of things that you've tried, like which are like more get-togethers or socials. Are there any other approaches that you've that you've taken and and have either proved to be really successful or actually you just tried them and, and they didn't work at all as a way to get the team to be more engaging? Because especially for finance teams, with some of the critical things you're working on, that very close collaboration, often intense collaboration, is often a critical part of the job. Yeah, yeah and the reality is, is, and this is my experience, I don't know if it's everyone's, but GNA teams, although they might be very close with each other, mm-hmm. they're also kind of quiet, right? And so a lot of the things that we do when we put people in an all-hands type thing, you have to pull them out, right? They're there, they're present, but they're they're not that engaged. So yeah, we failed at a lot of things, you know, and, and we start and stop things and, and move to something else. Most of it is just, you know, trying to get kind of social type activities going and interesting. And most of those, unless they're really creative, like, you know, we did a, a Jeopardy where we had a bunch of personal things about people that they shared and, and we put them in as questions. And so you could learn about people. Those things were interesting. But when it's just, let me show you how to make a cocktail. For the most part, people just kind of gloss over and you don't even know if they're paying attention. So I think the key is, is trying to be as creative as possible. And then the ultimate thing, though, is really success, right? And so if the company is doing amazingly well, people get energy. They're energized by their company, which is always a little weird to me. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I always care about the product, but I really don't care that much about the product. You know, I never tell my coach that. You know, I didn't build this thing. I, didn't, uh, I don't sell it. I believe in it because uh, there's a big market or, or whatever. But again, it gets back to me, this, the interactions and the people that matter the most. Um, but people uh, have a tendency to to want to be around companies that are successful, not just because of financial reasons, but because they, I think they feel like that's part of their success. The ultimate thing is just, you know, winning. You define your metrics and, and achieving and blowing out those metrics. That makes life very easy. And, and in a startup world, that ebbs and flows, right? I mean, you don't always get, you know, you don't have consistent results like you would in, uh, hopefully, in a public company. You've been part of many companies that, for most people, would would have been on a journey that they would consider like a winning journey. And not necessarily because of the end goal, but because it was rapid growth that ended, that ended with an acquisition, which is often the ultimate sign of like recognition from the market because a big company, a bigger company says, actually, you're really valuable. Sure. We want you to be part of that. And I was looking as well at like several of the companies you were in where it went through acquisitions or IPOs. I'd presume as well, like within finance, as a finance leader, as, a, as a, an operational leader, that those acquisitions are very intense experiences and that they often there's often a critical role for the finance team and the finance leader within that. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to actually be leading on the client side the, that those types of acquisitions and those types of exits? Yeah. Have you ever had a uh, proctology exam? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's something like that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so it starts with the philosophical way you think about this. So I don't believe any company that has opportunity should be thinking about a way to either go public or get acquired. I think those are options that could end up. But the minute you start to create a company and it's focused on those types of outcomes... I think you're you're missing the focus again, which should be yeah. on growth and customer and obviously development of, of the team. So I, I'll start with you never think about those outcomes. Those aren't those aren't destinations. And especially like an IPO, that's a fundraising event. That's a marketing event. But the very next day you come in and do your job again. And so I think the, the best thing to do in those types of transactions is really to limit the amount of people involved 
because again, it's very distracting, right? And and I've been a company who's had a potential acquisition that then stopped that acquisition. And if it's widely known, people can lose energy and focus, right? And and so we've always done, uh, whether it's IPO or M&A, we've done a really nice job of keeping the group that's involved in it very tight. That's number one. The second thing, this is for those who have kids or remember their school days, there is no grade for M&A, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, uh, especially when it relates to due diligence, it's pass-fail. And so I think too many people take the approach of in M&A, I want to impress the target, the, the one who's acquiring us. And, and it's just the opposite, right? They've typically already told you, here's what we want to pay for you. And now you're going through a process of, you know, validating that what they think you are is what you are, but they already, they already have a price. So it's really mm-hmm. about getting to the end line. That's the second thing. And, and oftentimes, and that's where I, one of the things I do is I spend an inordinate amount of my time in front of the process. So I'm in mm-hmm. every meeting. It could be a technical meeting on, on product. And I'm in that meeting and I have a cue. I literally have like little, I don't know if you guys remember Carol Burnett, but she used to, you know, wiggle on her ear to say, good night. I love you. I do those types of things where I'll, you know, I'll say, I, you know, brush my hair. I don't have any hair, but I brush my hair or whatever my cue is to tell people, you know, wrap it up, right? Because mm-hmm. we're getting into the, I'm trying to impress you part. And so those types of things, right? Just getting through it. And then also understanding that for the most part, and hopefully you're being acquired in a strategic way where they want to keep 99% of the people. It's also about setting people up internally to, to be successful on a go-forward basis. So that's the last part about this is when you get to a part where you start talking to people about the deal, making sure that what's received by them is, is something that instills confidence in, hey, the company has thought of me, what's happening on a go-forward basis makes sense. I want to be a part of this. I see how this accelerates our vision. And then, you know, after the acquisition, you know, there's another three to six months of kind of honeymoon. And, you know, if you, if you really believe that this is a strategic way to move the vision forward of the company, those people are critical to that vision. So making sure that they stick, right? And so keeping, because when you get acquired by, you know, you mentioned some of the larger companies, you know, Oracle, McAfee, uh, Google are some that I've been acquired by. When you land there, you don't always feel like you're a part of that company right away. Yeah. And it takes time and energy. So just making sure people don't get loose right after that deal, because you want them to be uh, successful in that. So those are, those are some of the tricks. And, you know, every, every experience is different. I've been very involved in two very large transactions. The acquirer was a very different company in both Mm -hmm. cases. And, and the process was different, but again, limiting the amount of people involved and then making sure that you you have a pass fail mentality to the due diligence, and then making sure that the team that you're working with on your side has a soft place to land and feels like they're part of a, a, a go-forward process and go the keys. And what's interesting with that is that it touches on the point where people will say that and the, the success of m and lies in not the price or the timing, but actually the integration afterwards. And in some cases, the, the integration can be full integration or it can actually be purposefully not to integrate so that they can almost mm-hmm. remain a separate entity. So mm-hmm. think that, that in that, you mentioned it and, and we're talking about change and, and the, the management of that change is that that of course is that critical point as to whether you can actually get value from the, the transaction itself. And I've been a, a part of a couple of acquisitions, as you described, Ross, where you've got mm-hmm. um, transactions that you are a complete separate standalone entity and you yeah. have the ability to run and it's probably for a couple of years. And then I've had ones where you've been, you know, siloed and and just put into a function uh, both ways. And I think there's pros and cons with both, right? The the one where you're uh, independent, 
you feel like you're yourself, but at the end of the day, there's still these 10 rules that you have to follow that are different. And you feel kind of like animosity potentially, mm-hmm. you know, cause Hey, why can't we do it our own way? You can't have your own sodas now, for instance, you know, now you've got to pay a quarter for them, those types of things. And then the other times where it's, you know, you kind of get integrated right, right away, you definitely lose your identity. You're not yeah. that company anymore, but you're really a part of the new company. And so people in that scenario, I think, feel like they either hit, hit the ground running and they're kind of in and, and they've got a place to land or, you know, they opt out quick. And so I think, you know, one is a little bit of a slow bleed and the other one is, you know, a quick one. And again, you opt in or opt out. So I think they're both different and it depends on the culture and, and where you're landing, but, you know, can both have successful outcomes for people. And there were two other points that I'd love to touch on connected to this. And the one that you mentioned, and I can see exactly why you would say it, which is you should never fixate on the exit because if you're doing that, it's like fixating on the end destination. You miss the journey and you might actually have the wrong incentives. And I can understand why you would do that. But when an increasing amount of the economy and still in private ownership rather than public, and then a, a, a large amount of people's compensation is attached to those private valuations. I use maybe just Stripe as a one example. I think they might be the highest value or one of the highest value private companies that are out there at the moment. And they're like 95 billion. And you can imagine many of those employees have have thought of their, as you said, going back to what makes people happy. They've got a package that they're happy with. So big part of that might be options or, or RSUs and, and some sure. type of ownership. And I saw this firsthand at Dropbox is that there were many people who made that decision, said, I, I really love this company, love the product, I'm here for the ride. But then they're, they become a little bit impatient because they're like, actually, part of what I was banking on was this this event, me being able to do something with this, which is different to public because sure. as soon as it's vested, you can you can sell it and you can do what you want. How do you try and balance that up, which is an incentive for, for employees to fixate on an exit, but actually as you said, the fixation on exit might lead to the wrong attitudes. It's a challenge. And, you know, there's obviously other ways of people getting liquidity. It doesn't yeah. always have to come from a, an M&A item or an IPO, a public offering. There's secondary markets as well. Yeah, I think you start with looking at, at your employee base. And so at Datastax, the majority of our employees have been here, you know, two years or less, even though we're a 10-year-old company. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have a pent-up demand for a liquidity event. Now, don't get me wrong, there's pockets, right? There are people that have been here eight, nine, 10 years and so you can look at those pockets and do one-off things for them. And we typically do that. We just raised some capital recently. And, and as part of that round, you can potentially offer secondary options, options for people to have some liquidity. So that, that's one thing. I use uh, Apogee as an example. You know, We were all there four years before our IPO. Many of us had come from larger companies and taken significant pay cuts to join the startup that had a million dollars of ARR. You know, When you're at that early stage, your pay cut's pretty big because it's, it's all in the upside. And so when we got to the third year, people were starting to struggle. They really were in terms of financially, right? I mean, it's, it depends on where you are in your career and your life. But if you, you know, you, you take a 40 or 50% pay cut, you feel the pain. You feel that from everyone every day. And so part of that, again, is, you know, talking to them about the promise of the future. Unfortunately, you never can do something just because it's best for, yeah. you know, a handful of your shareholders. And that could be uh, private investors too, right? private investor who's, who expects a liquidity event in five years and it's been 10, you can't say, okay, you know, we'll go public, right? I mean, you have to do what's right for the business long-term. The key is, of course, just to be communicative, but to remind them that we're looking for long-term value. And then, um, you know, as a coach, you know, you hear someone, right? If they say, geez, you don't understand, you know, my kid's now in college and I'm, I'm racking up debt, then you, you try to find creative ways to solve individual problems, or, and again, in a large kind of secondary type transaction, maybe use something a little larger for a bigger group of people, especially around fundraising. 
But it's really about just reminding them that we've got a long-term plan. That long-term plan is to mm-hmm. create this type of value and you know, please stick with us, right? The second piece actually that ties into that as well is that you mentioned, of course, don't fixate on the exit. But at the same time, in some cases, and this is less so for M&A because you never know when you're going to be acquired or someone's going to approach you. But if you're preparing for to go public, is that you don't want to fixate on it, but you might need to build capabilities, especially within finance, mm-hmm. to be ready for the public market. Because you, you mentioned how intense the M&A experience can be. I'd imagine going public yeah. is arguably even more so and the, the regulatory demands are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Was that a particularly challenging thing to prepare in terms of capabilities within G&A and within finance to make sure you were ready for that public market? Not really. Let me tell you why. There's there's two things to me that are critical in, in getting uh, getting ready for an IPO. And, and you mentioned kind of the regulatory things where you have mm-hmm. internal controls, socks, et cetera. Those are things you can slam in, right? And that, that sounds uh, counterintuitive, but you can put those in in the last six months. And so the things that don't really help me run the business, but they're statutory and they're regulatory, you know, I'll get a third party, I'll bring a bunch of consultants in and we'll slam them in at the end. That's kind of how I think about it, right or wrong. And some of these, you know, you have to, you know, establish them 12 months after, right? So you have some time. But so you want to be aware of them, but I don't want to do those things too early because they really don't help me run the business any better. And again, you could argue, sure they do. But again, in the the regulated manner, they don't. Maybe in the operational, they do. And so you, uh-huh. you do things that, that make sense for you. The second part to me is critical. And you start this on day one when you join any company. And that is, running the company like a public company. We try to act public no matter what. And so the reality is, is you might have to upgrade your system. At Apogee, for instance, we went from uh, QuickBooks to NetSuite just two quarters before the IPO, right? And so those are things where you're slamming them in. And you want to have a couple of quarters of you know running the company on those books. But, but we had visibility and predictability for a good year and a half before IPO, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the point I would say is act as if you're public now from the, the stuff that's hard, the stuff that's easy. And again, I don't want to trivialize, you know, system implementations and socks and all those things. Those things are difficult, but again, they're more compulsory. They're things that you can do kind of later. But when you do it that way, the, of course, again, they guess the sacrifice, because the, there's always a trade-off, the trade-off and the sacrifice of running yourself like a public company is sometimes your speed of execution, your agility as a team or as a company. Do you see it that way? Or because... If you're doing more in terms of preparation, operational, it might slow you down. That That's the contention that some people would come back with. I don't think it does if you're able to invest. And, and so um, giving an example is, you know, part of the excitement of being in finance is, is being a partner to someone. And again, we'll mm-hmm. use the marketing example. The closer the marketing business partner is to the business, all the stuff we're talking about is easy. Right, because you're sitting next to them every day. You're hearing everything they're doing. You know what's happening. You can anticipate their needs. And so the reality is, is all the things that we're adding in are things that you've been doing for the past 90 days. I'll give you an example. At the end of every quarter, we have our business partner on the people side and business partner on the finance side give a presentation about what happened in the business over the past 90 days. Mm-hmm. And they do this for the entire GNA team. And so the GNA team now here's some marketing, here's some sales, here's some support, here's some et cetera. And in the very beginning, it was very difficult for these teams. But after a couple of quarters, they understood mm-hmm. that if they just do their job, then all they have to do is write down a couple of notes. Yeah. And so the reality is, is, I think acting like you're public and, and just getting closer to the business and most importantly, staffing to a certain level, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, having that marketing controller instead of sharing it across you know, one person across several functions, Staffing to a certain level, I think, actually makes your job 
easier because you're closer to the business. You understand it. It's just intuitive. It's natural. I've worked in that environment before where you've had like different business partners, say within FB&A, that are, are dedicated to all different parts of whether it's revenue generating, commercial parts of the business, or engineering and product and design. It's so powerful because you've always got, from a business unit point of view, you've always got that one person you go to. And eventually over time, when it comes to even things that are major strategic planning or initiatives, the business partner already knows like the core levers of the business. They know what's going on. And so the, your ability to make decisions is just so much quicker. Totally agree. And, and, you know, and we also take it one further, you know, our people business partners, we actually say that they should be able to do the finance business partner's job because they're so close to them and the business. And we say the opposite, right? Which is the finance business partner should be able to do the people person's job. Right now, we don't move them back and forth because obviously there are certain skill sets. But if they're really listening and present and have a seat at the table, they really should have a very holistic view. And I, I go back to my BEA days. BEA did two things very well. First, uh, from a finance perspective, they didn't have an operations team. Finance and ops kind of sat together. We were all mm-hmm. one. And so we, we not only got to count things, but we got to do things. And that was great. The second thing they did is they had a forced rotation program. So every 18 months-ish, you had to leave your job and go somewhere else. For me, as an example, I was there 10 years, a long time. But I was the, at the time, we called them controllers. And at the same time, the company is going from $1 million to $1.2 billion in, yeah. in revenue. $100 million, sorry, to $1.2 billion in revenue. And so I got to see also a growing company from all different angles. And now I step back and I go, wow, you know, now I know what almost every angle looks like. And, and obviously, every company is different, but you've got a flavor. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you can apply that and it makes you so much more uh, valuable as a resource because yeah, I don't know if it's empathy, but you have an idea of, of what's going on over there and, and what potentially could be a lever that they need to pull. We're a smaller company right now, Datastax is, but we're, mm-hmm. we're doing some of those same things, trying to give people, you know, deep, rich understanding and at the same time, move them around a little bit to give them kind of a different perspective and view too. I like that. And what it does is it touching on an earlier point that you made about the value that your team, or not not your team, but the team, because I remember there's no ownership on it. I need to correct myself on that. Uh, still, still get my head around it. But the team that you lead, the value they get, that idea of being able to, in a way, it's like a working MBA where you get to go and partner with all different departments, all parts of a business, and then really understand it in its entirety. The value in that goes far beyond what you would typically find, you know, even in in the, the compensation or equity that they get, in, you know, from competitors. Completely agree. And so, you know, I got my CPA right out of college and there was a discussion about whether I should get my MBA or not. And um, when I left uh, KPMG, I went and joined BEA. And once I figured out what they were doing, that's exactly, it's exactly how I thought about it is this is getting my MBA in enterprise software. Yeah, I'm here in San Jose and ironically, I've been working in tech since then. So it was probably the right decision. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very valuable knowledge-based approach to every view into an enterprise. And so the goal, of course, is to give that to everyone else too, because I I found a ton of value in it myself. As we're coming to close, as I mentioned, we were talking about earlier on, is that many of the listeners are, are people who would love to emulate a career like yours and, and move into, into senior finance leadership positions. What advice would you give to people like that who are looking to develop and you know eventually move into a role like a CFO, given with the way that that role is evolving and, and where you see it going in the future? First of all, I, I start with something that I didn't do a very good job of when I was young in my career, which is you know be patient. No job is too big or too small for you. Um, so feel free to you know say yes to almost everything you can because you know the more you learn, the better. 
The second thing I'll tell you, and this is something I have done, is um, I mentioned the the product really doesn't matter. The people do. So make sure you're um, you're working and supporting people that you respect and you trust and you think will create, call it value, call it wealth, whatever it is. But, but look for people that are on a path and work with them, even if it's a challenge for you. As I mentioned just a second ago, you know, trust is an important part of this thing. So it's got to be someone you trust. If it's something you can't, someone you can't trust or you don't believe in, or you, you feel like you're going to have to compromise your own personal ethics, you know, stay away from those, those types mm-hmm. of people. And we all ran into them, unfortunately. It's got to be someone that you're, you want to have a beer with, but at the same time, they can solve big problems. So I would you know, focus a lot on the people and working with those, those type of people. And then the last thing is enjoy life, especially in the finance world. You know, I, I've had people that you know, celebrate wins and, and dwell on losses. And to me, you know, we spend the majority of our lives at work Hopefully not, but the majority of our lives at work. Don't be too worried about getting into that next role. Really enjoy what you're doing now. And if you do that, I do think that, you know, great opportunities will come and you'll just be happier. So I know it's easier once you've, you've made the CFO role to think about that. Um, and, but, you know, if you're enjoying what you're doing and you're doing a great job because you're enjoying it, I think those opportunities make themselves available. Yeah, I think that's very sage advice, Don. Don, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. There's been some brilliant insights from your incredible journey over the past few decades as uh, you know CFO and finance leader. For those of our listeners that are interested in uh, following you or connecting with you, is there somewhere they can do that? Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. That's fine. <laughs> but in terms of other social media outlets, no, that's not really my thing. My 18, 16 and 12 year old kids, they obviously have a uh, following on Instagram and Facebook, etc. But yeah, I don't really pay attention to any of that stuff. And that's part of my bliss, right? Which is not worrying about what's happening. Uh, exactly. and, and like we talked about every day, yeah. right? So I, I'll watch news for 30 minutes. I'll read uh, something online, but I don't post anywhere. So LinkedIn's the only way they can connect. I'm happy to connect. And truthfully, I do like to give time to people. So if mm-hmm. you know someone would love to have a follow-up conversation, connect with me on LinkedIn and just uh, mention the fact that they heard uh, heard us here on, on this podcast. And um, I'm happy to follow up with any uh, any questions or thoughts they have. That's brilliant, Don. Very generous. And, and until the day where your, your children are running your social media profiles, <laughs> uh, people can have a direct access. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Don, thank you very much. Of course, thanks for the time. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with someone you know. CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo, the leading smart company card and spend management platform. Learn more at soldo.com. <laughs>